I'm afraid sometimes when we talk about the idea of unity, we kind of feel like sometimes if we could just get into a time machine and go back to the first century, there'd be no problems. Because after all, in the first century, everything seemed to be just right. They didn't have the same problems we do today. It was the perfect setting for fellowship. There was no problems back then. And I have to tell you, if you thought that way, that's just not true. There wasn't perfect fellowship when the church began and the history, the early history of it. Even though the teaching was there and the worship was understood and simple, the reality is Christians still sinned. People still at times followed depravity and made poor choices. And there were times when fellowship is broke down. As we walk through the book of Acts, in Acts 2 you know the church was established, but in Acts 3 and 4 we see them being close together. But then we come to Acts 5. And Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for lying to the Spirit, to God. And fear comes upon the whole group. And then you come to Acts 6 and there becomes an uproar. So people are saying, well, we're being overlooked. The Grecian widows, they're not being taken care of like they should be. And, and there was a breakdown. And so seven men are appointed to meet that need. You go a little further, and in Acts chapter 9, a man named Saul becomes a Christian. He becomes a disciple, a follower, a believer. And even some among the apostles were not necessarily ready to accept him. It took a while to forgive him for his past. And then in Acts 10, we have the Gentiles being converted. And in chapter 11, we have to meet and we have to convince people. It's actually okay that somebody that's not a Jew can obey the gospel and come to the Lord. There's another problem there. In Acts 15, we have to deal with another subject causing the division. And then at the end of Acts chapter 15, as if that's not enough, we've got two evangelists that come together and have a disagreement. Paul and Barnabas are ready to go. And Barnabas says, well, hey, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no way. And Barnabas says, well, why not? Well, he left us last time. We don't want him like that on a journey. We've got to depend on him. And you see that in Acts 15 and verse 39 starting. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. The reality is there have always been conflicts in the church. It's unavoidable. There is going to come those times where we have those problems, even between adults and even children. It's like the preacher one time said during the beginning of his announcement, we want to let everybody know the fourth grade boys are in complete control of the Sunday school class and are holding Miss Mosby hostage at the moment. Conflict is unavoidable. But what do we do? How do we go? And it's made up, the church is made up of people. And realize that I don't think all conflict is bad. Sometimes conflict is purifying. You can't make metal pure without putting it through some conflict of heat. And sometimes there's things that happen that sharpen and strengthen our fellowship. And yet there are times that it's harmful. And in our lessons this week, as we come together and we talk about getting closer to one another, being united, connecting and conquering, we have to realize that it's not just as easy as saying, okay, we're going to be together, we're going to unite. Thus said, done, easy. Reality is, when we try to come together, there's going to be some problems along the way. There are going to be times where the fellowship breaks down. 
And what do we do? How do we react when that happens? Let me give you some reasons. I, I failed to put my, I realized I got up here, I didn't put my animations on here the right way, so you just follow along with me and, and we'll talk about these things. What are some of the reasons people become isolated? Well, one of those up there is extreme suffering and sickness. If you go through enough pain, you want to be alone. You don't want to be with other people. We, I, there are some times where you go through physical or emotional pain, suffering, turmoil. Few people in those situations really want to be around people sometimes. In fact, we know there are cases where some people are so physically distressed that they make requests like, we, we don't want any visitors at this time. And the reason for that isolationism is to, for them to get healthy. Maybe it's emotional, we're embarrassed by what we're struggling with. Maybe it's physical and we're so exhausted we can't be around other people. You know, the Bible gives us some great examples of people who isolated themselves. You know, David was the only one in 1 Samuel 16 who could refresh the spirit of Saul. When Saul got distressed in that state, he would not be around anybody but him. Have you ever thought about how in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is so wrought with grief, knowing what is coming his way in the garden, that he goes off alone to pray? There are times where we, we have this isolationist idea because of the idea of sickness and suffering. There's times when burnout and fatigue can affect us. Sometimes what happens is our lives are stressful. I don't know about yours, mine's stressful. My, my kids get out of school at 4 o'clock. They get to the house around 4.15. My son has football practice at 5.30. we got to be out the door by 5. 45 minutes for homework and some kind of food is not a lot of time. And it seems like we go there, we come home from football, it's off to the showers, it's cram in some, some devotion before we go to bed, and let's pray together, get to bed, start all over in the morning. And you know what? You do that over and over and over again. You know what happens? You start to get pretty burnt out, don't you? There comes a time when you go, you know what, we're going to have to take the season off. We just can't do this anymore. My kids don't know that, by the way, but I, me and my wife have just reached that agreement. Basketball is out this year. We're staying home because I am tired. I am burnt out. I am tired of spending my night at a practice field or a gymnasium. And if I'm not careful, I know what's going to happen. My candle's going to go out. And the reality is sometimes we need to step back and realize we don't have to do everything. Sometimes we need to take some time off and learn to back away from so many commitments. I, I'm thoughtful sometimes about the fatigue aspect of Elijah. Elijah is an interesting study because he goes to Mount Carmel, he defeats 850 prophets of Baal, and then almost immediately... In chapter 19 of 1 Kings, he goes and he sits under a tree. And he says, Lord, just kill me. I'm the only one left. Now, he's just defeated 800. He took him down to the brook according to the law and killed him according to the law for being false prophets. And yet he goes and sits under a tree and says, just put me to death. I'm done. I'm the only one. He's burnt out. He's tired. He's fatigued. He's famished. He's weary. And what did God do? Did God say, now, Elijah, you know better than that? You, you get up. You get up and get over it and you, get, you go on with life. No. Did he scold him? No. Did he sit him down with a long sermon? Did he frown or fret over him? No. What God did is he took him and he, he healed him. He refreshed him. He fed him. He gave him the time to recover. You know, from time to time, there are going to be people among the body of Christ 
who are tired, who are burnt out, who were fatigued, who need to rest, who need to relax, who need to be refreshed. We might look at them and say, I can't believe they're so lazy. And yet we don't know what's going on in their life. They don't need to be cornered or lectured or guilted into work to be encouraged. I'll tell you what burns out Bible class teachers and, and elders and, and preachers is not it is not the, the constant work. It is the feeling that there is no appreciation for the work. You want to you prevent burnout among your leadership, among your teachers, and among, among your, the ones who deliver the lessons and the song leaders and all of those who are active and the workers and even the people who are out knocking on doors or, or maybe the ones who are pulling the weeds in the flower bed for you if that happens. You want to prevent burnout and fatigue, you show appreciation and you encourage them. What about trouble at home or personal turmoil? You know, if we're facing financial worries or we're having problems with a child or maybe there's a conflict between us and our mate, or maybe there's some moral compromises that, that are facing us that we know we can't make and we don't know what the ramifications are going to be. Maybe it's work problems. When that happens, it always causes us to withdraw a little bit. You know what happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 between David and Bathsheba. You know what they did. You know what David did. Do you remember what David wrote about that time period of his life in the 32nd Psalm? Turn over there and see how he described this. You'll see how that he pulls away. Look at chapter 32, Psalm 32, starting in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand is heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions before the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He's pulling away. He, he's, he's groaning until he confesses. That heaviness, look at the 51st Psalm sometime, and time doesn't permit us, but he says, have mercy on me. Wash me. The, the, the turmoil at home and the trouble at home, and obviously his includes sin. These are dark days. These are not psalms of praise. He's not extolling the greatness of God. He's not fighting wars and conquering lands. David was sitting at home and bemoaning his sin and dealing with his grief and his depression. He was removed and preoccupied. Don't you know that happens today? And sometimes what we need to do instead of being critical is we need to be patient and encouraging. What about friction between two or more individuals? I think that's the most common reason why the reality of the breakdown of fellowship is. People with people conflict. One-on-one -on -one turmoil, personality clashes, disagreements about someone else's decision, and there's no closure, and we don't talk about it, and we just go on and on throughout life, and this guy sits over here, and this guy sits over there, and somebody says about him, well, you know what he did to me five years ago. That doesn't allow unity. Solomon said, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Brethren who quarrel end up putting bars on their heart that will not allow their brethren in. And it says, stay away. I want to be left alone. 
The story told of two sisters who had a disagreement. They were never married. They shared a house. And these two sisters, they shared that house. And, and in time, what happened is they could not get along any, any better, so they took and drew a chalk line down the middle of the house. And the only time they heard each other was at night. They could hear the breathing of their enemy across the house. Why did that happen? Because nobody was courageous enough to take the first step towards reconciliation. Humans are weird people. We're driving down the road and our car breaks down. Do we just leave it there and never fix it? No, we call a tow truck and we go get it fixed. We have a roof that leaks and water's coming into our house. Do we sell the house and buy a new one? No, most of the time we fix the roof. Rare furniture is, is broken some way. Do we just discard it? No, we try to fix it. Now, the irony of that is, is that when a couple of people have a conflict, so often we just throw the relationship away. Well, I'm not going to be friends with him anymore. I, I, I'll see him, but I don't have to like it. Very rarely are couples or parties big enough to work it out. We'll spend hundreds of dollars restoring an old car or an old piece of furniture, but not ten minutes to restore a broken relationship. Does that make sense? i got to tell you, if antiques are worth restoring, so are relationships. And then there's open disobedience against God. That's the most serious reason relationships break down. And we talked about all week that the reality is we cannot get close to one another until we get close to God. And we have to draw closer to Him to draw closer to one another. He is the, the binding cord that brings us together. But when somebody directly and defiantly disobeys God, they become isolated from God and therefore of necessity become isolated from His people. I want us to turn over to the book of Joshua and notice together the battle of Ai for a few moments tonight. As we continue looking at these people in transition. The reality is that the book of Joshua kind of turns into the Indianapolis 500 of the Old Testament. They're just kind of racing from one battle to the next. And without a moment's hesitation, they sweep through Jericho, and here they come to Ai. And Joshua chapter 7 appears to be kind of the pit stop of the book. Everything screeches to a halt. You have to understand that the city of Ai militarily is just kind of a pushover. Compared to Jericho, it's a hole in the middle of the road. It's, it's really just a clot of dirt. That these people, they go up to Hebrews and say, oh, we don't even need to send everybody. Just send a couple thousand people. It's not a big deal. We can take that. No problem. And so we see what happens. Look here and read what happens in chapter 7, this, this remarkable loss. And how the, the, the Canaanites, which were the equivalents of a bunch of rednecks from a little spot in the road, defeat God's people. Start with verse 2, and it says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said, Do not have all the people go up, but let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they're few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sebarim and struck out the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, I know we look at this and we go, wow, you know, 3,000 people, they only lost 36. That's not really that big of a deal. 
I kind of looked on the internet to kind of look at common wars today. And in the Second World War on D-Day, the losses were tremendous. But you put into context of the wars we're in now in Iraq and Afghanistan, I'm not sure that we've lost 36 men in one day yet. For a one-day loss, that's pretty troubling. And especially the people of Israel who haven't lost, from what we can tell, anybody. Something here went terribly wrong. Now, if you've read the rest of the chapter and you've read the book, you know what it is, but, but just wait and put yourself in the shoes of Joshua. God has said, wherever the sole of your foot touches is your land. And here 3,000 people go up to Ai and they get run away. And 36 of them fall. Our purpose tonight is not, tonight is not to rebuild military strategy or look at ancient history, but look at the relationships and how they impacted this. There's four stages here that we go through in this chapter together. The first of those is, what is wrong? The symptom stage. You study the battle of AI and you think about what goes on and, and you see a couple of things aren't right. There's a breakdown in the normal routine. There's a reaction here from the Hebrew people that's not what they expected. They go to battle and they win. And now they've lost. They're expecting some slight skirmish with no big results except for them to take a city, not lose anybody, and now they get wholesale resistance. And not only that, secondly, there's a discouragement, there's a loss of morale. The Scriptures say that their hearts melted and became like water. Can you imagine that? Has your heart ever melted? Has it ever melted? And not in a good way? You know, we use that term today saying, oh, he just made my heart melt. That's not the way this is talking about. These people became cowards. There was a song that said, you don't bring me flowers. You don't sing me love songs. You hardly talk to me anymore when you come to the door at the end of the day. A husband and wife can become sensitive to a distance that's separating them and, and the problems and the breakdown in the relationship, and they get discouraged. That's, that's what's going on here. The hearts are melting. You don't sing me love songs anymore. You don't talk to me when I walk through the door. The symptom stage is realizing that. The routine's been altered. The morale is lower. What is wrong? What has happened? And in the local church, that's going to happen at times. There's going to be a feeling. I've heard people say, I was talking to a gentleman just this week, and he says, you know, we had all this excitement and all this energy, and just in a amount of time, we had about eight baptisms and eight restorations, and then something happened. It just quit. It just stopped. The first thing you have to ask yourself is, well, what's wrong? What is the problem? What's happened? We know that something's wrong. What happened that caused this? Now imagine being Joshua in this text. Put yourself in his shoes and start reading in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? They give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? What happened, God? 
The Canaanites are going to know that we're weak now. We didn't even fight. We turned and ran, and 36 people were killed. It's apparent here that Joshua goes with the elders, and he seeks God's wisdom. He's going and saying, what's happened? What's happening? What's, what's the problem? Let me say this. When problems happen, we don't know what's going on. Initially, we might gather with others that are concerned and pray to gain insight. Don't leave that step out. So often what happens to us is that we leave that out and we shrug it off and we say, well, I don't know what happened with that guy over there, but he'll figure it out. It's his problem. I don't know what happened, why there's upset and what the, what the problem is. I know there's a breakdown, but they'll get over it. It'll all work itself out. Just leave it alone and let it, let it take care of itself. Too many churches have been split in half because things took care of themselves. We have to be more proactive than that. People don't get over it. The wife whose husband doesn't bring flowers anymore and doesn't come home like he used to, she doesn't just get over it. She doesn't get content to just say, oh, well, I guess that's how it's going to be. That's not how it happens. And it doesn't happen that way in the Lord's body. We must start, as Joshua did, with prayer. God, what has happened? Prayer is the key so often. It opens the door to our hearts. It gives us depth perception. Prayer calms our spirits. It sensitizes us. It gives us the, the ability to feel and to know. And we should learn from Joshua. We need to pray to God. And God answers them in verse 10. He says there, get up. I love that. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things and have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, he says again. Concentrate the people and consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord the God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies. You cannot take until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by a lot shall come near by clans, and that clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and that household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. All he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he's done an outrageous thing in Israel. Did you notice that God never said, your problem is the guy over in the tribe of... He didn't say that. He didn't say, Achan's the man. God gave direction, but Joshua and the elders had to take action. Sometimes we forget that when we pray to God, it doesn't just mean that we say, God, take care of it, and we do nothing. We have to do what is in our power to do and take the action, especially that God has said. God makes clear the problem. It's disobedience. Someone is guilty. Here's how you'll figure it out. You bring them in and you cast lots and the lots will fall and I'll tell you who it is. I'll direct you, but you have to do it. And that gets us to the third stage, who's involved. And so in verses 16 through 21, they carefully go through this. And it comes until Achan is found out. 
Achan of the tribe of Judah. And notice what happens in verse 20. After Joshua says, What have you done? Achan says, I truly have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I covered them and took them. And see, they're hidden inside the earth in my tent with the silver underneath. Do you notice that Joshua gave Achan the opportunity to at least give an explanation? When you find out who's involved, and he invites the whole truth, don't lie to me, don't hide it from me, he allows Achan to explain himself. At some point, when the fellowship is broken down between God's children, and it's affected the entire congregation because of their sin, confrontation is absolutely necessary. Not because it's enjoyable. Not because we go, boy, look what we're going to do to this guy now. Not because it's something we look forward to. In fact, it's painful. It's tearful. And I have to tell you, if, if you go so far as to say you enjoy those encounters of conflict, you're doing them out of the wrong motive, and you're just as wrong as the person who sinned and caused the problem. Our job is not to be the, the, the extension of God's kind of FBI and, and out here trying to interrogate and reprimand and judge and, and sentence people. But when there is a problem, we have to find out who's involved and why it happened. We need to be mindful of the passages in the New Testament that teach us about the importance of this. Paul wrote, brothers, if any of you is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. James wrote in chapter 5, If anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. We do this not to get even, or humiliate, or embarrass, or to judge, or to criticize. We simply must find out who's involved so we can save their soul. And then finally, what is needed? Now, under the case of Achan, there's no choice. God has already said, up in verse 15, all that he has has to be burned, and he has to be taken from the camp, and he has to be put to death. This is a capital crime under the law of Moses. That's what we see here. Punishable by death. And in chapter 7 and verses 22 through 26, we see that that is exactly what they do. They take him and his family, and they burn his things, and they are all put to death. I know that's sad, but that was God's law. I tell you what that tells me is that I'm thankful we live in a time of grace and mercy. In, in these instances, there are times we have to be the extension of God's judgment in a sense. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And often the full recovery of a brother or sister in God's family depends on our, our ability and willingness to step in and stand face to face and to correct them in a spirit of gentleness, as Paul said in Galatians 6. We have to do that. And hopefully they'll repent. I know some people are hesitant about that. 
I know some people say, well, I, I love them. Why, why would I confront them and why would I have that conflict? Why would I have this confrontation? Why would I do that? I love them. You will do it because you love them. I love my kids. And if one of them were standing out in the middle of this busy road and there came a semi atop that hill, I would do everything in my power to get them out of the road, wouldn't you? I would run, I would yell, I would scream. I'm not fast, but but I tell you what, I bet adrenaline would kick in, and if I could, I would run and I would swoop them up to get them out of the path of that coming truck because I love them. When someone is sinning and their soul is in jeopardy, they are standing in that road and there is a spiritual truck that is coming to kill them. And I do not understand why my brethren often say, no, just leave them alone and let them find their own way out of the road. God has given us a plan to get them out of the road. And we could go to many places because what if they don't repent? What if we confront them and they don't repent? Well, I'd like for you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and to see a few things from there. And we won't dwell long on this, but this is the application. In, in our time, this is the application for what happens in Joshua 7. In Joshua 7, those people were put to death and they were burned in all of their belongings. But we don't practice that today under the law of grace. The grace is extended in that they are given the time and opportunity to repent. And here's how this occurs. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man who is doing something that is so sinful and immoral that even the Gentiles don't practice it. That's a pretty slanderous statement. Start reading in verse 1. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated among pagans. For a woman has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, Paul says. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this to be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let me tell you, there are two reasons this is done. The first we just read in verse 5. This is done, this removing him, this turning him over to Satan, this marking process. And I want to use that term very clearly, of noting the one who's in sin. That is done to save his soul in the day of the Lord. That's the first and foremost. Because you love him and you want to go to heaven. You tell him this is so serious, he's going to have to repent. And secondly, verse 6 says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lot? The second is to protect the influence of those who are in the congregation. That if he's allowed to remain, that his influence will influence them. I, this is what we commonly call church discipline. And I know people say, well, it's a time of grace. Yeah, the grace is seen that your life is spared in comparison to the old. You don't have to give up your life. The grace is not a justification for a man to continue in his sins or those who assemble with him to continue to tolerate it. Can't be done. Is it easy? No. Is it enjoyable? Absolutely not. But I tell you what you learn from Joshua chapter 7 is this. 
God said you will not win another battle until you remove the devoted things, the sinful things from camp, until they are removed, until you do what you have to do. And I tell you, the modern-day application is pretty simple, brethren. A congregation that tolerates sin and winks at it like the church at Corinth did will never grow and mature spiritually until they take care of the problem. It cannot happen. Now, not all breakdowns in fellowships can call for a confrontation or direct intervention. Not all breakdowns in fellowship like burnout and fatigue and sickness and the things we talked about, those don't call for this reaction. They're not a disobedience to God against God, but willful and defiant disobedience against God. And it causes the Lord's name to suffer and the church to suffer. Drastic measures must be taken. Not because I said so, but because God did. Because that's what He's required of us. So what does that mean to all of us? First, it means get involved. Fellowship breakdowns that are a direct result of disobedience will not take care of themselves. They just won't. And that means we get active and we get involved and we help out our brother or our sister and we recognize the need for them to come back to God. And we become a part of the process. Let me tell you what does not need to happen, because so often it does in churches, is this is some brother over here that's having this problem or some sister, and everybody knows it, but we don't do anything about it except talk to everybody else about what's going on. That's not right. If, if they are sinning and they need to be helped, then we all need to get involved in the praying for their soul and even the discussing and the teaching and the gentle bearing of their burdens until they repent. Secondly, start today. We sometimes think if we just wait, maybe it will take care of itself. Maybe just put it off a couple, just let it wait a couple of months. I don't know that that's ever worked. And even sometimes when the people go away, if it's just left open-ended and it's never dealt with, it doesn't work. And the longer it goes on and just kind of festers, it's harder to repair. There's no benefit to delaying action. And thirdly, don't quit. Don't quit. What if somebody doesn't repent? They give us the ability to say, well, God's plan doesn't work. We're just we're never going to do that again. It's not that God's plan didn't work. Since the beginning of time, there have been men who have chosen not to follow God. Don't let their choice be an excuse for us to make the same choice. To not follow God. And don't quit admonishing them if you do have to take action. That's the bad part of church discipline. It's so often we mark somebody who's unfaithful. We no longer have anything to do with them. We don't even admonish them as a brother. The Scriptures teach us to continue to admonish them as a brother. And what that means is we continue trying to encourage them, 
and remind them and help them to understand God wants them to come back home. And their spiritual family wants them to come back home. And the only way that happens is when they repent and put away their sin. Don't quit. If you had a tumor, and your doctor examined you, and he determined that that tumor was malignant, would you want him to ignore telling you the truth? Would you want him to say, oh, everything's okay? Would he be a friend? Would he be a competent professional if he told you there was no problem at all? Don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. Nothing to be concerned about. And would you recommend him to others if he did that and you found out what he had done? No, when we go to people who watch over our physical bodies and we have problems, we tell them, I want you to shoot straight with me. Tell me what the problem is. I don't care how bad it hurts. Why is it that when it comes to those who watch over our souls, we kind of want them to take it easy on us? We want them to make acceptances and allowances. And when we're spiritually sick because of poor choices, we want them to just tolerate that, not say anything. Don't rebuke me. I don't want to be, don't discourage me. It's painful. But are we competent as God's children? And do we really love our brethren if we allow them to lose their soul? I think you know the answer. I don't know of a congregation of God's people who's not had problems. If you know of one, that they're just perfect and they've never had problems, I'd first tell you not to ever go there. You'll mess it up. But secondly, I'd probably tell you, you call and ask somebody. They've had it. We're going to have problems. We're going to have people who make poor choices, and we're going to have people we love who make bad decisions and do bad things. How we respond to it is the key. And I hope that you understand that everything we've talked about tonight should be done in the spirit of love. Bear your, bro- your brother's burdens and restore him with a spirit of gentleness, not hate, not animosity, love. The same love that convinced Jesus to come to earth and to die for us. We're to show them that same love, sacrificial love. And I would encourage us all to do that.